0: Seven through 30. and Mindful again of how it connects to one of the Beatitudes. Verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Jesus says, Verse 27, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. In response to the sermon, will sing of forgiveness that God provides when there is confession and repentance. And we'll do that with Psalm 32, the stanzas 2 and 5. Dear children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, guests, earlier today we heard how the existence of humans is in two types male and female. We considered marriage. We considered sexual intimacy. We came to understand how human humanity is is the crown of God's creation. For humans were created in the image of God, and to be so, they they had there had to be this plurality of humans, a plurality of roles, just as God is three persons in one God. And God himself made it clear that it wasn't good for for the human, for the Adam, to be alone. And so he divided the Adam, the Adam, into two by taking a rib from the side of the first man and fashioning a woman from the flesh and bone he had just taken from the man. And, And then God unites the man and woman, now two individuals, into one flesh through marriage. So marriage is where humans can express love and loyalty to its greatest extent, thus reflecting God in his love and loyalty. Marriage is the diamond in the crown. And the sparkle of that diamond, the deepest expression of love and loyalty, that's sexual intimacy. For in the act of love meeting, a human individual gives him or herself entirely to the other. Sexual intimacy is an expression of human identity. The identity God gave humans when he created the world and the human race. And in it we have the the highest expression of imaging God. Indeed, adultery and idolatry are in a sense the same thing. Unfaithfulness to God is spiritual adultery. And committing adultery is idolatry, for it is prioritizing your own lusts ahead of God's love. This being so explains why God is so adamant about purity in sexual matters, and why God is so against any deviation from his created order. And so the Lord Jesus is dead on when he points out that being told, you shall not commit adultery, uh, doesn't just mean that all is good if, if you don't commit an act of adultery. No, somebody who purposely stares with lustful intent, says Jesus, is already committing adultery in his or her heart. And that heart, that heart has to be pure. Now, earlier today, we considered the background to this command, what it's saying. Now we want to continue by by looking at how this command impacts our lives as humans who who fear God and who who earnestly seek to keep God's commandments. And doing that will will help us better understand who we are before God. It will indicate our need for Christ in being acceptable to God and also the need to receive the Spirit so that we may stand in the hour of temptation and not give in to evil. And so we'll hear God's good news summarized with this theme. Be pure in heart, be blameless in action, do not last. And we'll consider our sin, our struggle, and God's promise. First of all, our sin, the sin of adultery, even in the heart. You know, the most beautiful of things can become the most horrible of things. So you've got to be very careful. Fire is a good example of that. Picture a summer scene, campsite by a lake. It's evening, fire is burning in the fire pit. Family sits around roasting marshmallows. There's that golden glow that you get from a campfire reflecting on people's faces. There's warmth coming from the fire. Fire in the fire ring at a campsite, it's a beautiful thing. But boys and girls, if that fire escapes the ring, that's bad news. If your marshmallow catches fire, your marshmallows toast. Unless you can very quickly blow the flame out and you don't mind eating the black stuff. Think a step further, if somebody throws some say some cardboard on the flames, fly flares up, there's this gust and, and that that sends that cardboard burning into into the sky and it, it hits a tree and before you know it the tree's burning. And then the forest is ablaze. Wildfires are horrible things. Fire is a beautiful thing in the right place. It's a horrible thing in the wrong place. And love, love is like that as well. In the Song of Solomon we read, Love's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. Picture that for a moment. A wildfire so intense that it cannot be quenched by rain and floods. Hard to imagine, but that's what love is like. It's the very flame of the Lord. This is actually the only place in the Song of Solomon where the Lord's covenant name is mentioned. The intensity with which love burns between humans is, is the intensity, well, it, it ought to be the intensity with which love burns with the covenant God. God's love is is so intense, so protective, that God is described, both in the Old and in the New Testament, as a consuming fire. And that's both times in the the context of the covenantal relationship that God has with his people. It's where the worship of God is concerned. And marriage... The love of marriage reflects that covenant relationship. In the Old Testament, God is often portrayed as a husband and his people, Israel, as his wife. In the New Testament, Christ is often portrayed as a bridegroom and his people, the church, as his bride. And of marriage, it's said explicitly in the New Testament that it reflects the relationship between Christ and his church. Now, just as fire belongs in a fire pit, so that most intense form of love expressed in sexual intimacy belongs within the covenant of marriage. Love-making belongs within the ring of marital loyalty. Any and every act of love-making and any and every desire or thought with respect to love-making must be shaped by God's design in creation. Now, that doesn't mean that we ought to fear sexual intimacy, that it's taboo, that it's a topic to be avoided. The Father in Proverbs 5 speaks quite bluntly and quite graphically in a positive way about lovemaking. I quote, "...drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well." That's talking about seeking joy in intimacy with your own spouse. Let your springs be for you alone. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. And then the father says, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Think about that. Intoxicated. Be drunk in the love of your wife. And, of course, the other way around as well. A woman is to be drunk in the love of her husband. The Apostle Paul, he wrote somewhere, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another. And that's a text which follows on the heels of a sentence that speaks about conjugal rights. That's a fancy expression reflecting the two shall be one flesh in Genesis 2. Sexual intimacy is the sparkle of the diamond called marriage. But it's precisely that reality that makes sins of a sexual nature so abhorrent, so so totally wrong. The path of a forbidden woman says the father drips with honey. It's attractive. But realize, my son, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. The person who is intoxicated with the forbidden woman, who, who embraces the bosom of an adulteress, he dies for lack of discipline. As Jesus points out in the Sermon on the Mount, those who who commit adultery will see their bodies dumped in the valley of Hinnom, in Gehenna, the dump outside Jerusalem's gate. Those who commit adultery will see their whole bodies go into eternal death. Now, where desires are concerned, the experience of lust is very different for males and females. Males have the sinful tendency to objectify women. Literally, men turn women into objects, into things. That's why the clickbait on YouTube tends to involve female curves. Guys see girls as things. And females, females have the sinful tendency to instrumentalize men. Literally, women turn men into instruments, into tools. Men are a means to get ahead. That's why women are attracted to rich or powerful men. Girls see guys as tools. And in both situations, what should be an expression of other-centered love becomes an endeavor of self-centered lust. Males will entice females by presenting themselves as a means by which females can achieve their goals. And females entice males by presenting themselves as things which males can then use. But congregation, marriage, is not about getting. It's about giving. And where the giving is mutual, there will be receiving. But the focus should always be on giving. Remember, what's in marriage is a reflection of who God is. And and now look at God's love and see how it is a love of giving. The Father gives the world. The Father gives the Son. The Son gives His life. The Father and the Son give the Spirit. The Spirit gives faith. The Spirit gives good works. And yes, in giving, there will be receiving. Humans who receive will give God the praise. And that's what marriage should reflect. Husband and wife are given to each other by God, and they give themselves to each other in love and loyalty. Any intimacy out of that relationship is an act of self-centered lust. And every step on the road to such an act is a refusal to live by God's will and purpose. And I am telling you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, the focus of our text is specifically the act of intimacy from a man directed at a woman. But it's not restricted to that. One point the Lord Jesus is making in his sermon is that the scope of the law is broader and deeper than the letter of the law. He's already explained, do not murder implies do not hate. Well, do not commit adultery implies don't look with lustful intent. And this way of speaking usually states the most extreme to cover what is parallel or less extreme. So again, Jesus isn't letting the women go scot-free here. A man will have lustful intent. A woman looking at a man will seek to entice so as to get ahead. To destroy, this is usually actually what it's about, to destroy the competition. And now the Lord Jesus, in focusing on the hearts, also covers situations that are at odds with God's creational ordinance. The ordinance of just males and females. The ordinance of marriage as the union into one flesh of one woman and one man. As we state, as we confess with our church order, I quote, the word of God teaches that marriage is a union between one man and one woman. And so situations of same-sex attraction also fall under the umbrella of adultery, as well as situations of gender confusion that have no biological cause. Any and every deviance from that which God created as described for us in the Bible, that's sin. Now, to avoid misunderstanding right now, that doesn't mean that every deviance implies eternal condemnation. I pointed out earlier today already that there's hardly a man here in church who could say, well, I've never looked at a woman with lustful intent. The Lord Jesus said that one's righteousness had to exceed that of the Pharisees. And when once Jesus challenged the Pharisees regarding a matter of adultery, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, then the Pharisees all drooped off. Because none is without sin. There is forgiveness for the sin of adultery not just the acts of adultery, also the adultery that exists because of our sinful natures. Desiring the forbidden man or the forbidden woman, whether you're a man or a woman yourself, there's always a way out. King David was forgiven. We'll be singing of that with Psalm 32. But before I go deeper into that, A few words on those who have little or no desire to be married or to have sex. For for there may be this impression, oh, Scripture says that marriage is a command. It's not. The Spirit tells us via the pen of the Apostle Paul, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widow, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. And Paul's reasoning is that for sinful humans, it's better to be single than married. For those who are married have their attention divided between between the Lord and their spouses, while the unmarried don't. It's no sin to be single. And there's something commendable about being single. But at the same time, do not underestimate the desires God has created within us. Paul, same Bible chapter, is very blunt about that. But if you cannot exercise self-control, you should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn. Now, the ESV and many other Bible translations add the words with passion, to burn with passion. But the words with passion are not found in the original Greek. And a suggestion has also been made, maybe we should add the words in hell. So it would read, either, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion, or it would read, it is better to marry than to burn in hell. And the latter lines up with Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount. Either way, Paul says, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order where intimacy is concerned, and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord, regardless of whether you're married or not. Now, the matter of intimate love is complex. And in more recent years, it's become all the more complicated given matters of sexual orientation and gender identity. For the God-loving Christian, the question is very real. How are we going to fight this sin if it is even nestled in our hearts? And that brings us to our second thought, our struggle. The Lord Jesus is, is very graphic In his instruction, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Are we supposed to understand that literally? Yes and no. Yes, because we understand the point about one's whole body being thrown into Gehenna, into hell, literally, both with respect to that literal valley of Hinnom dump outside Jerusalem, as to the literal hell of which Scripture speaks, calling it the second death. Jesus urges his hearers, and that's us here as well, to take every measure we can to prevent the arousal of lust. God forbids whatever may entice us to unchastity. The words of the Catechism. And still, no... Because you've got to know that Jesus doesn't talk about removing both your eyes or cutting off both your hands. If you think about it, what's the point of removing your right eye when you've still got an eye to see with? You can see almost as well with one eye as you can with two. What we're encountering here is the mashal of Hebrew literature. It's the proverb which makes you think. In all of this, there's an impossible element. And so we've got to be wise in how we prevent ourselves from encountering situations in which we will be tempted and and may plunge ourselves into sin. Paul puts things this way. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And that's, in a sense, an echo of Proverbs 5. Don't look for love outside marriage. In sum, the Lord Jesus is urging us to be very serious and and to contemplate very carefully the measures that are required for our righteousness to exceed that, to be more than that of the scribes and Pharisees. What are those measures going to be? Well, it can't be exhaustive, but let's touch on a few important ones. The first one is prayer. Matthew 5 ends with, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And a few sentences later, the Lord Jesus is teaching his hearers about prayer. Brothers and sisters, the moment you sense temptation coming close, you've got to pray. Now, that's really difficult. Because if you love God, you know that your prayer is going to deprive you of the fleeting pleasure that your heart is desiring. But if you don't pray, you're losing the battle. God will give his grace and the Holy Spirit only to those who constantly and with heartfelt longing ask him for these gifts and thank him for them. It's the catechism. Praying not to enter into temptation is essential to the Christian life. And second, prayer combines with action. There's a song that that sings, a kid's song, Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Job, who was a blameless and upright man, knew from experience the power of, of the desires of the heart. And when he's defending his uprightness, he says, I quote, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? If I do, what would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? conscious of the fact that the Lord tests all of humanity. Job had made a covenant with his eyes. And if you're familiar with it, this is the text where the computer filter covenant eyes comes from. Put measures in place that will limit the temptations that confront you. Use filters, use devices in public places. Deny yourself access. And speaking of covenant eyes, has me think of a third measure that's accountability. Be transparent about where you are, about what you see, and support each other. Realize no one battles alone. Indeed, the battles you fight are the battles others fight too. The preacher in Ecclesiastes warns Woe to him who is alone when he falls and does not have another to lift him up. Though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. So we've had prayer, action, accountability. One more. That's training. As with everything in life, if you're not trained, not educated, temptations will overwhelm you. You know, a third of the introductory chapters of Proverbs, that's Proverbs 1 through 9, a third, chapters 5, 6, and 7, Describe how a father teaches his children, and it's on the topic of lust and adultery. Three chapters. And those three chapters are actually a metaphorical introduction to the chapters that yet follow, chapters 8 and 9, which present to us two women, Lady Wisdom and Madam Folly. Lady Wisdom offers a feast with chastity. Madam Folly offers an orgy with adultery. Just one quote from Madam Folly. She says, Stolen water is sweet. And I never realized it until I wrote this sermon. That's actually a reference to Proverbs 5. Those springs. Stolen water is sweet, she says, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But says the father in Proverbs, the naive does not know that the dead are where she is and that her guests... Are in the depths of Sheol. What this is telling us is that adultery is God's illustration for utter stupidity. And so train in the ways of wisdom. Be pure of heart. Be blameless in action. Don't lust. As to ways to train, programs in our churches, such as Life Renewal, has already proven its worth. And the Conquer series, that's another program that's also proving to be extremely helpful. And if I may, a little bit on a personal note, very early on in my ministry, I realized that there are many matters in relation to sexuality which are actually best not left until pre-marriage counseling. And so I incorporated a course on love and lovemaking into my catechism curriculum And I've got catechism students or people sitting here who took those catechism lessons with me in Abbotsford. Uh, Since I became a Bible teacher at the high school, um, I'm in my fifth year now of teaching, and I became responsible for teaching the Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Much of my curriculum has now moved from my catechism class to my Bible class. And then last year, with the act to ban conversion therapy coming into force, I was assured by the school board that I could keep on teaching as I had, I'd have the backing of the school. You see, it's not only the churches that are under a legal cloud, it's our schools as well. And I mention this to assure you that, that much is being done to train our children in the ways they should go. In Willoughby, where I'm the pastor, we've also got some children that are in other schools. And you can tell, it's, it's left alone. Or worse, there's indoctrination in another direction. And here we need to hold our biblical ground, regardless of the laws of the land. That brings us also to our third thought, God's promise of forgiveness and victory. You may have noticed in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes on strong. He comes on harsh. People would have felt convicted by his words because Jesus doesn't sugarcoat things. He spoke with a clarity and directness, with a sincerity and an urgency that people weren't used to. Matthew recorded for us after the sermon was over, I quote, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, one thing the Lord Jesus does not do in his sermon is explain to the people how their righteousness could exceed that of the Pharisees and scribes, how they could be perfect as God is perfect. The point of the Sermon on the Mount in the history of redemption, it's a sermon at the start of Jesus' ministry, is to impress upon God's people the extent of their sinfulness and depravity. It was a sermon that was intended to have people reflect on their lives and realize how hopeless things are for them. If they are to make things good between God and themselves. It was about people having to understand why they would need not just the teaching of the Christ, but the work of the Christ. His death on the cross. You see, Christ was bringing people into a crisis. And in keeping with the character of our text, We've spent most of the sermon earlier today and this sermon understanding the gravity of sin and lust. But yes, we live after the sacrifice of Christ. We know what Christ has accomplished by his sacrifice. We know what the Holy Spirit is now doing among us. We have God's promise, the assurance of forgiveness and the victory. We have the assurance of forgiveness Congregation, do understand that no sin or weakness which remains in us against our will, that includes lust in the heart, can prevent us from being received by God. Be assured that that those who seek to serve God from the heart, impure though the thoughts of the heart may be, can count on God's forgiveness. For your coming to God clothed, In Christ, you come to God clothed in Christ. God acts, according to Catechism, God acts as if we had never had nor committed any sins and as if we ourselves had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for us. Accept this gift with a believing heart. And it's not only forgiveness, it's also we have the assurance of the victory. Now it's true, our sinful nature is something against which we have to struggle all our life. And so the complete victory, as in the pure heart, you're not going to attain that in this life. But that doesn't detract from the reality that our old self has died with Christ, and that with Christ we are being raised to a new life a life that strives for pure love and steadfast loyalty. There's the reality of Romans 7 verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin, and so I struggle. But there's also that reality of Romans 13 that we heard this morning as well, a text which says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to satisfy its desires. Be assured, the Spirit is indeed given to us to conform us to the image of Christ in righteousness and holiness. And that makes us the image of God we're supposed to be. And so be pure in heart, blameless in action, don't lust. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 11 closes with these words, The Lord is righteous, all who are upright shall see his face and fill their deepest yearning. The highest expression of love among humans is by God's design that of intimacy between a married man and woman. In your actions and relationships, be led by love, not by lust. Strive to be pure in heart. For we're on our way to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And that's when love will be even more glorious than we can imagine now. Amen. Let's pray.